0: of fun. Our community right now is just beginning to hit its stride through 2023. We're developing two postures this year by which we are approaching modern life. Rest as a way of being, resilience as a way of doing. I see two primary challenges to the modern Christian's life and really the modern in general, believer and unbeliever's life. Exhaustion and cynicism. And these two challenges, exhaustion and cynicism, they exacerbate one another. Most of us live with a constant low-grade fatigue, be that physical fatigue, relational fatigue, social fatigue, political fatigue, mental fatigue, emotional fatigue. And that general tiredness lends itself to what I just described as a cultural dark mood. (laughs) A cynical perspective. Cue up all the parents in the room who get that panicked look in their eye when they're toddler and it's close to nap time. Get that baby out of here because it's about to go wrong. When humans are exhausted, whether 2 or 22 or 202, when humans are tired, we get to be pretty rough around the edges, pretty bad in mood, pretty deformed in perspective. And so we believe that this exhaustion and this cynicism is actually a diminishment of our humanness. We were not designed to live this way. So to counterform our lives against exhaustion, as I already said, we are establishing the practice of weekly Sabbath, a 24-hour period of time to cease from all work, to delight and contemplate God and to rest in his goodness. And this is going to be for the rest of the life of our church. It's in the DNA of who we are as a church plant from the very beginning. This is an anchor for our community, a seventh day period of rest for all of us together. As announced, we're beginning that training this week. Get signed up, 630 to 830 dinner on us. To counterform our souls against this entrenched cynicism that we swim in, we are spending months in the book of Ecclesiastes, spending Our time at the feet of a teacher who went by the title Koheleth, which essentially means assembler, the gatherer, the professor. And he was a chief cynic in the history of sages and thought leaders and philosophers. Each week as we read Koheleth, we're meditating and using his questions and his deconstruction process and his frustrations as a sounding board, asking ourselves, where do I think like this man? Should I think like this man? Am I thinking like this man? Where is he right? Where is he wrong? And we are trying to discern a better way forward through this cynical age. Now to this point, koheleth has sought meaning and satisfaction in power and pleasure, women, wine, wise living, and he has found it all meaningless. His conclusion from all of his experiences, which were many, and all of his endeavors, which he dove into with his whole heart, mind, and strength, is that life is a vapor. Life cannot be grasped. It's all emptiness. The Hebrew word, Havel. This morning, Koheleth now sets his sights on his career. If women and wine and wealth all failed him, If even wise living couldn't satisfy his soul, maybe his work might unlock the key to a meaningful life. Now, can any of you guess what Koheleth concluded from endeavoring to make work his meaning and his life? Any guesses out there, friends? Ecclesiastes 2.17, so I hated life. (laughs) This guy is such a bummer read. I'm serious. He's hard to meditate in week in, week out. As Koheleth said about hard, establishing in his hustle culture way, himself in his career, contributing to society via his vocation. When it was all said and done, rather than fulfillment, he was frustrated. And he was frustrated to the point of hating his life. It's a strong word that he uses here. He detested his life and his work. It had become despicable to him. By placing the full weight of meaning and value in his work, Koheleth's life became his enemy. Why? Because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless. A chasing after the wind, Havel. It was grievous, he says to him. It was the Hebrew word, rah. Can you all say, ra? Doesn't that sound nasty? His work was raw. Raw translated grievous here is the Hebrew word, often translated in our English Bibles as evil. More literally translated, bad, disordered, deconstructive, frustrating, raw, bad. And it first appears in the Genesis accounts of the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve, they ate from the tree of the knowledge of what? Good and evil. Tov and raw. Tov, good. Raw, evil. Raw, bad. Adam and Eve ate from the knowledge of the tree of Tov and Ra. So Koheleth's use of garden language here helps us understand his frustration. Koheleth was experiencing the consequences and the cursing of the fall. In the garden, Adam and Eve were actually commissioned to work. The garden wasn't just Mai Tais and kicking back in lounge chairs, guys. It was hard work. Work was good, and work was beautiful, and work was necessary. Adam and Eve, humanity, we were to cultivate culture and art and industry and cities and societies. We were to draw upon the latent possibilities of creation. Work in the garden was joy-filled. It was an intimate partnership with our creator as humans walked hand-in-hand with God. When Adam and Eve believed the lie, they believed the lie that working in partnership with God just wasn't enough. There had to be more on the deceptive counsel of the snake, they took from the tree of the knowledge of Tove and Ra. And this separated them from God, expelled them from the garden. And that expulsion and that separation cursed all human work. Outside of the garden and separated from God, cultivating beauty and society and industries is now full of, the language in Genesis is labor pains. Terrible pains and thorn pricks, thistles and thorns growing up in all that we try to cultivate. Koheleth's search for meaning and joy, they were all attempts to get back into the garden, all attempts to build his own garden only without God. He tried to build his own Garden of Eden on the backs of slaves that he used for projects and sexual pleasures, but that failed to restore garden satisfaction to his soul. He sought to live wisely as Adam and Eve should have done, fearing God's directives and will. But the curse of death robbed his virtuous life of meaning. So when Koheleth turned his sights on his work, he turned his sights to that which was already cursed, disordered, deconstructed, bad. And it was evil to him. It was grievous to him. And so he hated it all. Then to add injury to insult in the midst of labor pains and thorns and raw, Koheleth recognized that even what he could accomplish in the midst of all this bad might be misspent and destroyed by whoever he left it to after his death. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish. Yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is Hevel. Meaningless emptiness. Koheleth's life had become this unconquerable enemy because he could work and toil his whole life only to see some fool destroy it. So, what was the point? Koheleth, many scholars believe he was echoing here the story of Solomon and his son Rehoboam. Solomon and Rehoboam, they're a cultural tr- and social trope that sort of are on repeat like a skipping record throughout every generation. Family heads worked very hard to get established. Foolish, spoiled brat kids throw it all away when they take over. Solomon had built his Hebrew empire to its highest heights. In the days of Solomon, the streets were paved with precious metals, we're told. Israel was at peace and reveling in prosperity. Solomon's death transferred the kingdom to his son, Rehoboam. And upon taking the throne, Israel came to Rehoboam asking him, hey, can you lighten the load on us a little bit? The peace and the prosperity that Solomon had built had come at a cost. Remember, the empire that Solomon built was built on the backs of slave labor and perverse marriage contracts. Now, we joke about 700 wives and concubines of Solomon. But listen to me. Sex slavery was statecraft in Solomon's Israel. Empires are always built on the backs of others. So... Rehoboam inherits the throne. And the subjects of Solomon, now Rehoboam, come to him saying, may we have relief from these burdens, these heavy yokes. Rehoboam consulted with the experienced and the wise elders, and they instructed him, Rehoboam, ease up on these people, and they will follow you to the ends of the earth. He also consulted with his buddies, you know, his old frat brothers from the days gone by, and they were fools. And he said, Don't get soft on these people. You show them how tough you're going to be. You're going to be way tougher than your dad ever was. And instead of yielding to wise community, translate that sweet counsel of the church, Rehoboam chose his frat brothers. He chose folly. The king answered the people harshly, rejecting the advice given him by the elders. He followed the advice of the young men and said, my father made your yoke heavy. I'm going to make it heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I'm going to scourge you with scorpions. And just like that, this fool took decades of peace and prosperity, granted the peace and prosperity built on the backs of oppressed people, but he took decades of peace and prosperity, and he threw it in the trash. Israel and Judah at this moment split right down the middle into pretty much a civil war for the rest of their existence, and the rest of the story of the two Hebrew divided kingdoms is a story of rapid decline until the Babylonian and the Assyrian captivities. I can't tell you as somebody who thinks generationally, I've told you guys, we're not working off of a five-year strategy, a five-generation strategy, how frustrating it is to think that my great-grandchild, if he's a fool, could wreck all of this. So frustrating. So frustrating. To think that within two or three generations what we are praying for, one of you could mess it up. It can go really well with generations, which is what we're praying. When we say we're praying for a five-generation strategy, I'm praying for my great-great-great-great-grandchildren to guard the gospel, to love God's people, to stand fast and faith-filled in the kingdom of God. I am praying for that. They'll never know my name, and I am praying that the fifth generation, from my line, loves Jesus, but some fool in there could wreck it. That's frustrating. Koheleth's frustration, his hatred, it turned to despair. At the impossibility of sustaining anything of significance beyond this life. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill. And then they must leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. This is Havel and a great misfortune. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days their work is a grief and pain. Even at night their minds do not rest. This too is empty, meaningless, vapor, smoke, Hevel. Work your whole life in the hopes of making something of yourself. Possibly even garner a little respect from your fellow human. Even contribute some good. Move the ball forward a little bit down the field to society and then die, be forgotten, and have no control over the fool that may wreck it all. Koheleth's hatred and despair, friends, is the modern San Diegans hatred and despair when we really get under the layers of our frustrations. We, too, are cursed by the fall. Our work is filled with labor pains and thorn pricks most of our days. And even the tiny percentage of us in this room that are lucky enough to be working in a career path that we thoroughly enjoy, well, we have many weeks where Monday is definitely an enemy. <laughs> when that alarm goes off, I want out of this so bad. We are particularly prone to Kohelet's as moderns, We are particularly prone to Kohalist frustration in work and life because more than any other society in history, the late modern Westerner, that's you and I, we put the whole weight of our identity into our work, but work cannot support the weight of our identity. Work cannot support the weight of our identity. Traditional societies framed their sense of value and identity through the family. You worked to provide for your family, and that was honorable and that was noble. Not necessarily the work itself and certainly not the type of work, but the fact that you worked in general for your family was the highest value. Your social role as mother, father, child, cousin, auntie, uncle was how you understood your identity and contribution and value to the world. Even as recently as the silent generation and even the boomers still had this mentality primarily about work that I work for the provision of my family, Gen X. Angry, starting to shake our fist at everything. That's my crew. We were the first to really begin to say, you know what? I want to vest a little bit more of my identity and my self-value into my vocation, which we then bequeathed to the millennials in Gen Z. And millennials and Gen Z want their work to have deeper purpose more than any other generation, more than just a paycheck. Millennials and Gen Z say, my work has to be my mission, my value, my identity. And in so many ways, friends, that's good. That's incredible. We have seen vocation take on incredible fruitfulness in the millennial and Gen Z generations because I don't want just a paycheck. I want to do something of value. My identity is in this. But at the end of the day, we must recognize that Christians, as Christians, work cannot support the weight of our identity. It cannot grant to us our ultimate sense of value. Now, interesting note here, just a little sociology for us on a Sunday morning. Burnout experts actually say that the vocations that are most prone to experience burnout are those with the highest sense of meaning attached to them. Why? Why? Because when you are working in a vocation that you attach a ton of meaning to, this attaches your identity to it, your value, who you are, is wrapped up in that work. And of all the generations, millennials and Gen Zs have said, I must have deep, fulfilling meaning in my work. One stat I heard last week, this blew my mind. 96% of millennials will experience some form of burnout in their lives. Isn't that interesting? To speak to the families in our community, young, growing church with young families our kids will experience this burnout as well. If Gen Z and Alpha generations are raised by parents who are making work their identity, this is at the expense of something else, always. And what I've observed, it's primarily at the expense of the family, presence unto one another, sense of familial identity, sense of solidarity together. When you add to that the intense social pressures in our modern moment, to make our kids something. Parents and kids are running ragged from schools, to sports, to events, to opportunities. None of those are necessarily bad things, but when parents are devoted to career and then driving the family to make something of itself, our kids never even are able to slow down and have space just to be children. Stranger Things, Big Banana Bar Gorilla Handlebar Bikes, That was my childhood. You know what we did? We got up, and from sunrise to sunset, we rode around on our bikes, and we were kids. That's gone for a host of reasons. Work-life balance in the modern era is tremendously difficult, and I want to be careful here. Mama guilt is just crushing. Father guilt in this room is just crushing. We love our kids. We want to do the best for them, And our Father in heaven is aware, and he knows what we need, and he has a Pacific ocean of grace and mercy and guidance for us to swim in. Family presence and family priority and care for one another instead of our identity being built in our career does not mean that, let's say, both parents working in San Diego is wrong. That's crazy. San Diego is so expensive. 99% of us can't survive here without two incomes. It's virtually impossible. But that, that being said, Koheleth asks us to question deeply. He calls us to be careful and honest and to assess and to recognize, where am I building my identity in my career? Where might I to ease off the gas a little bit? Where am I hoping little Johnny, little Jimmy, little Sally, whatever you've named them, Coulter, I don't know why that just came to my mind. Where are you making them be something? Where are, you, where, where, are you, where are you desperate for them to be something? They are something. They're a human. They're a baby. They're a kid. What a treasure. Let them be a kid. <laughs> Let them be a kid. I know, mommy, dad, I know. I've asked these questions for 20 years now. And you guys have it worse than I did as a Gen X parent. How do you do this? Everybody right here is now looking for the how, and now the, ba- the rest of the sermon is like three steps on how to be awesome parents and have a great work life. Listen, there's, this is terribly difficult. I don't have an answer to that. That's why you guys pay me the big bucks. I don't have an answer for that. <laughs> <laughs> this is about our hearts. The point that Koheleth is forcing into our hearts and minds and our conversations this afternoon at lunch is, okay, our Father knows what we need, and he's inviting us to explore our hearts. And he's inviting us to explore what's driving us. And he's explaining, He's inviting us to explore why is that driving us. And why are we prioritizing this in this way and prioritizing that instead of this way? Where can we trim the fat, reprioritize in accord and in the contours of the kingdom of God from a prayerful posture of trusting God's love and grace and provision for us so that we can work hard as career people and be parents to children who are actually children as God is leading us by the Spirit instead of our flesh and the world and the devil. All good? It's the best I've got for you guys this morning. My kids are almost out, so I'm done. (laughs) The point is self-awareness rather than blindness. He loves us. He loves our families. He loves our kids. He loves you. Just trust him. He will tell you how to and what to do. You got to listen, though. And in that framework of listening and prayer, friends, it is good for us to give our lives to something. Don't mishear me here. Alexis and I, and by proximity, our kids, we have laid down everything, and it has cost us a ton over two decades now for the greatest cause that we can imagine, Jesus' church. But our vocation cannot determine who our family is. When my kids were little, I don't think they knew that they were pastor's kids. We just refused to let that moniker be placed upon them because we are children of God. Long, long before we are his soldiers or his servants. Don't forget Genesis 1 and 2. Guys, remember that teaching? Rest is at the center of creation. Adam and Eve's first day on the job, so to speak, was what? Shabbat. It was Sabbath. Rest is the truly human way of being. And from that place of delighted loveness, we cultivate creation with resilience as our way of doing. Rest as our way of being does not mean we're not working hard. It means that we work resiliently out of our lovedness. Getting that backwards is what warps our souls. When we make work our core identity or a way to distinguish ourselves from our neighbor or to show to the world and prove to ourselves that we are valuable and special, it will fail us no matter how many promotions you get. We aren't valuable based on what we do. We are valuable based on our image-bearing reality that our God created us. We're his children. Second, late Western moderns, are given over to the plight of Koheleth's frustration because we have too many choices. Too many choices. Ours is the first culture and the most extreme, without question, the most extreme to say, you define yourself by deciding what you are and you go for it and you attain it. For most, mos- for most societies in human history, a person did not choose from this buffet of voc- vocation options. A career fair was not present in Jesus' day or Koheleth's day. You were either a lowly slave of the powerful, from which you would never escape, or a lower middle class laborer, and you would follow in the footsteps of your family. You did not have a choice, or you were born into the elite stratosphere of society from which you could not fall. For us, though, oh, Willie. Willie, warns, Willie Nelson warns all the mamas, don't let your babies grow up to be cowboys. Don't let them pick guitars and drive them old trucks. Let them be doctors and lawyers and such. You see, we have our choice, and we even have our valuable vocations, and we have our vocations that we avoid. I'm sorry if you're a cowboy. (laughs) Only after you've become someone in your work in our cultural moment, and usually a particular line of work, then you're somebody. Then you're of value. Now, most of us would think as good, Western-trained, Democratic Republic living people, hey, choice is good. It's my choice. You think that that might be a good thing. And in one sense, it is. I'm so grateful for the liberties that we have here in the United States. But if you're choosing who you're going to be and how you're ultimately going to be of value, that choice is paralyzing. Kiddos, Gen Z, that's why you're so terrified half the time in your unconscious, because you're trying to decide who you're going to be. You can't handle that weight. That's crushing. What if you choose wrong? What if you don't find meaning and purpose? What if you fail at your chosen vocation? You guys all realize we still do live in a capitalistic economic system. And that means you have to produce. And if you don't produce, you are demoted or fired. Does that mean that your identity and value is demoted and fired? And if you're promoted, well, let's just ask an honest question. If you rise up through the ranks, is that the best thing for your soul in light of the kingdom of God? Finally, Koheleth's frustrations are ours in a much more extreme way because modern work never stops. Ever. It never stops. I shared some time ago at the age of 35, breaking out in shingles, my body reacting like an 80-year-old man, my teeth being eaten out of the back of my head by stomach acid because I was working 75 hours a week and sleeping work. Non-stop. Work is constant for the modern. And it creates this fatigue and less, f- f- less fulfillment. You realize we all have a supercomputer sitting in our pocket right now that keeps us at work constantly. And we all work from home now post-COVID, which has been a real benefit to some and an absolute disaster for others. Because without office hours, some people cannot just shut it down. I'm pointing the finger at myself. This has been a disciplinary problem my whole life. Koheleth said literally, the literal translation of that Hebrew there is, their hearts could never lay down to rest at night. How many nights have we lain in our beds, awake with anxiety, fear, uncertainty? For me, it's all about strategy. I cannot tell you how many times I've strategized to change the world at 3 o'clock in the morning. For what? For what? Koheleth would say so frustrating. When work is our sole source of identity, fulfillment, and satisfaction, eventually it will fail us, and we will find ourselves frustrated, and we will find ourselves experiencing that raw, that curse, and then despair sets in, and there's this sense of inescapable enslavement to a situation from which we cannot get free, so what are we to do? Deep breath in, let's relieve the tension of this teaching, because wow, Koheleth, it's a bit much. Koheleth, in a couple places in this book, and these are like breathers from his cynicism, he turns a very subtle corner, and there's so much to draw from these glimmers of clarity that Koheleth gives us. Never forget, this man, he's not a black and white either or thinker. Koheleth lives in the gray, very sophisticated thinker, very nuanced. And so at certain points in the book, it's like he comes up from his abyss of cynicism and he begins to impart the vision of God and the kingdom and reality all around him into his teachings. Chapter 2, verses 24 to 26. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their toil. This, too, I see is from the hand of God, for without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This, too, is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Koheleth comes up, takes a big, deep breath, and he says, don't quit your job. (laughs) Don't go to work tomorrow shouting hevel at your boss, I'm done, I'm out. It's all meaningless. Don't quit your job. Gohelith also says, resist the temptation to throw your hands in the air in resignation and despair. That's, part, that's half the battle. Resist the temptation to throw your hands in the air in resignation and in despair. In a very, very nuanced and somewhat cryptic way in, in his teaching, he says, when it comes to work and it comes to life, return to the garden. Go back to the garden. Return. Adam and Eve and our rejection of God as sinful human beings curses our work. But God came to us embodied in Jesus, the God-man. And in Jesus, he came to accomplish the most critical work. And that critical work was to restore humanity to right relationship, Apart from any work that they could do, by faith, embracing his life as our life, his death as our death, his resurrection as our resurrection, Jesus of Nazareth absorbed into himself all of our hatred of life until it killed him. This is what the cross was. Jesus experienced ultimate despair in real separation from his father on the cross so that our guilt... And our forsaking of him would be wholly and completely forgiven. And we might be restored to that relationship with God again, without fear, without shame, accepted and loved. Jesus took the pain of thorns and a cursed world to recreate a new one, including you, a new creation in him. And so through his finished work on the cross, you and I right now, by faith, in this moment, are Forgiven completely, empowered totally, accepted forever, restored totally, and commissioned as a new garden people with every breath that you breathe. Remember, God designed your job tomorrow to be an intimate, joyful partnership between humans and himself. And this is what our work is as apprentices of Jesus, in Jesus, and through Jesus's finished work. Koheleth, hundreds of years before Jesus, he's catching a glimpse of this garden-restored way of thinking about work. He says, he's honest, he's nuanced, he's sophisticated. Yes, work is difficult, raw, grievous, it's hard, but... Embrace every moment of life, every breath, including work, as a gift from God, and enjoy it. Enjoy it. As followers of Jesus, work is a restored garden work. And so we can enjoy it. Why? Because we're no longer working for our justification. We're not working for our value. We're not working for our sense of identity. We are loved, forgiven, accepted, restored, empowered children of God. The identity and the value work has been done by Jesus for us. We receive it as a gift through his crucifixion and resurrection. And now we go forth out of our lovedness, rest as a way of being, resolutely and resiliently cultivating creation in partnership with him. As we work, we are cultivating the future Garden City, friends. His kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Our work is an intimate act of worship Our work is an intimate act of worship, creating thin spaces between heaven and earth. Does that make sense? Tomorrow when you go to work, you create a thin space as a Christian between heaven and earth, corporate offices, and blue-collar corners of society. Catholic writer Dorothy Sayers said, Work is the gracious expression of energy on behalf of others. Another author, he said, Work is love made visible. Work is the gracious expression of energy on behalf of others. Or work is love made visible. That's garden language. That's a garden vision of vocation and career. Koheleth's problem and your problem and my problem is that we make work our identity, the mark that we can leave, the value and significance that it can provide for us, without God. And without God at the center of our work, it's cursed, it's raw. But having been restored to the garden, in Jesus Christ, through his work as a gift, in partnership with God, our work now becomes a gracious expression of energy on behalf of others. And everything we do can and should be a gracious expression of energy on behalf of others. I hear one or two of you right now, but Dan, I hate my job. I ah, oh, frustrating. You don't understand. I hate it. Or one or two of you, Gracious expression of energy on behalf of others? I don't, what? I'm a, I'm a barista. I'm a janitor. I'm a grocery store manager. I'm, I'm a bus driver. I'm not a doctor or a therapist. Or They work on behalf of others. I'm making coffee. All work is good in the garden because all work brings some form of good to others. Trust me. When those baristas make me a good salted maple, oat milk latte, it's good. And I'm like, thank you for bringing me to the garden this morning, dear barista. I love you. Of course, this is complicated. I would love these to turn into three-hour lectures so we could get into the details of these things. This This is complicated, though. In a fallen world, there are terrible forms of work, terrible, terrible forms of work that destroy people. It's a very complicated issue for moderns, we who can choose our vocation, our path. Can I just summarize what needs a three-hour lecture? As Christians, we need to consider if our work, when weighed out on the scales of justice and injustice, care for the other or manipulation of the other, we need to consider carefully in this modern day, is our work weighted towards the kingdom of God? You're never going to find work that's just perfectly all kingdom. Even we, pastors, who are working for the kingdom, trust me, a lot of us are working not for the kingdom. Not me, though. Trust no. <laughs> this is difficult. This is difficult. Koheleth never alleviates the difficulties. But at the end of the day, listen, at the end of the day, making coffee, cleaning buildings, driving the bus, pastoring, doctoring, medicine, lawyering, all the vocations that God has given us to cultivate and create art, industry, beauty, beauty society, cities. All of it is an opportunity to expend energy for the well-being of others. Second though, second, we do our work for and in the pleasure of God. Jesus has restored us to the garden. Therefore our work is done out of God's pleasure in us. And so we do it to please him and we do it because he is pleased with us. He's delighted in us. And so whatever we put our hand to tomorrow morning, whether we're frustrated by it or we're in workflow, We are not earning God's pleasure. We are loved by Him and He wants to go to work with us tomorrow morning. He wants to go to work with us. Paul told the Colossian church whatever you do, baristas and bus drivers, Doctors, cowboys, lawyers, whatever vocation you have chosen, whatever you do where you're stuck in a dead-end job that you hate, or you're on a career path to the top, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive more than a paycheck. You will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward for that good cup of coffee, for that cowboying, for that lawyering, for that bus driving, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. That radically changes your perspective on work. The lion's share, I'm almost done. The lion's share of us are never going to find work that perfectly suits our every desire and ability. I, for 20 years now, have woke up every morning with the tremendous privilege of saying, I love, 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 love my job. Even in the moments when I've had the eject lever fully, like I'm trying to yank that thing, I come back to, I don't want to leave this actually. I love, love what I do. But I struggle, to put it lightly, with some of the parts of the job, particularly administrative de- stu- detail stuff. I kind of break out in hives once admin stuff starts coming out. It's like, it's like, it just feels like Japanese to me. This last year for the budget meetings, I had some high-end, really, really high-capacity gifted administrative people walking me through the budget stuff, and they were just like, wah, 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 and I was like, somebody kill me! But I there said, I'm going to hold the hand of my God And I'm going to partner with him to do the very best job that I can because he's pleased with me. And no matter how bad I am at this, he's going to take care of his church. He's going to take care of his people. Now, a couple final thoughts. Of course, if you absolutely hate your job, that is probably God beginning to guide you into something that's going to fit more truly with your makeups, your abilities, your training, your personality. But until then, even if you are just desperate to get out of it, get your paycheck, treat yourself to a good drink, take your friends and family out for some good food, and be satisfied that you expended energy graciously on behalf of someone else for the glory of Jesus. This is the way we walk beside God, and we allow God to walk beside us in our vocation. All vocations are holy. Even in the most mundane spaces, there is satisfaction, not only because God says the work is good, but because the God that we are working beside is good to us. And so if we walk closely enough with him in our daily work, we become conduits of his presence, thin spaces between heaven and earth. This is exactly what Jesus did as a carpenter, mundane work, and as a crucified, resurrected king, magisterial work. He's done the work, and so we have to get to work tomorrow, friends. And I'm praying that this week, literally, your workplace may be a little bit thinner space between heaven and work because of your partnership with the king, and that the gardens you cultivate this week would be lush and for his glory. And this week, go to work as loved children, not as cowboys and lawyers and doctors and such, as loved children, loved children. Let's stand and read our liturgy to close our morning. We read these words from Koheleth and our teacher Jesus to keep us from dropping into the cynical abyss that Koheleth can sort of leave you in if you're not careful. Together, now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the duty of all mankind. Teacher,